pray for uh, the hearing of God's word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word. What a gift. I mean, the gift of Jesus is indescribable, but the gift of your word is so helpful, so necessary for us. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, this morning you will speak to us each powerfully through your word and that we, uh, our hearts will be opened, ready to respond and be, as James says, uh, doers of the word this week. I pray that uh, this morning won't be the only time your word ministers to us this week, but that you will build in our hearts and lives a, a reservoir, a foundation that uh, will help us in times of trials and uh, help us when we want to uh, put our own interests above yours. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you today. Wanted to give you a little update. A bunch of you have been asking us how the uh, support raising is going as missionaries. And uh, I think we've raised 60 bucks so far. Is that about right? That's right. That's the truth. We really haven't started that yet. 
Um, but I did want to tell you that this next week we're going to a training session in Minneapolis. Libby and I are heading out there for several days, and uh, they're going to be explaining to us how to do all that kind of thing and how to get set up. But we've really been focused on on still what, what we're doing. Mike has asked me to be still preaching about two-thirds of the time, and that'll continue through Philippians. Uh, Mike has a bunch of cool stuff going on behind the scenes with our leaders and stuff, and he'd like to be able to focus on that. And so I'm continuing to do about two-thirds of the preaching. After Philippians, that'll swap. And uh, after this next week of training, then we will begin this process of probably communicating with a lot of you in a prayer letter type of thing, telling you what we're doing. We've had people asking us now, what exactly are you doing? And All that kind of thing. So I just wanted to kind of take some of the mystique out of that and let you know that things have been pretty normal here up until about this point, and things will begin to shift here in the coming weeks and in the next month or so. So we are really excited about our future, but we are not actually living in the future quite yet. Uh, We are in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And uh, we'll be looking at this uh, passage this morning, and we'll begin in verse 1. What I'd like to do is go through it uh, word by word, phrase by phrase, to make sure that we really understand what Paul is talking about. This is a kind of a weird few verses, and probably not any of your favorite verse. Ver- uh, you know, you don't have this one up on your refrigerator or something. This is what, it's about circumcision, so that's probably not maybe your favorite subject and that kind of thing. And so we're going to try to understand what exactly is Paul communicating here because there are some very interesting things if we pay attention to it and focus on it, make some connections to other parts of Scripture. So let's do that, and then we'll draw out some implications. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Further, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This paragraph here, these few verses, has to do with joy. Now, the context of this passage is that lots of difficult things are happening in Paul's life. If you remember, he's in prison, and he also has the threat of a death penalty. Uh, The court is going to be meeting and figuring out what to do with Paul, but there's the possibility that they may put him to death for preaching a false god. So that's pretty stressful. He's in prison, and he might be put to death here very soon. He's also surrounded by quite a bit of interpersonal conflict. Uh, We saw that in chapter 1. Those who preach out of envy, there are quite a few people who were saying, don't listen to Paul anymore. God hasn't taken care of him. God has allowed him to be in prison and all this kind of stuff. Obviously, Paul is not somebody to be listened to. Here's who you should listen to. Listen to me. So Paul has all of these people that are kind of making fun of him and criticizing him and telling people to not listen to him. Then he also has churches like Corinth, uh, very, very dysfunctional kinds of environments that are criticizing him and all kinds of heretical problems. And this is weighing on his shoulders. Uh, So we could go on and on. Uh, He had been beaten by angry mobs. Uh, Paul has a lot of things to be stressed about. Lots of difficult things happening in his life. And yet he says rejoice, rejoice. So there must be some theological reason for joy because there are lots of circumstantial reasons not to be joyful plus he talks about joy all the time in chapter 4 verse 4 paul says rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice and in chapter 2 we see that it really is kind of a robust joy 
It, it doesn't go up and down based on circumstances. But in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, that's referring to the fact that they may be putting him to death very soon. And this would be God glorifying. It would be a persecution type, martyrdom type death poured out like an offering. Uh, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, I am glad and rejoice. And so this is an amazing kind of joy. Paul had learned some secret, some insight into how to be happy. It was a permanent way of being for Paul. And that's a very interesting thing to think about. Paul's joy was a permanent way of being. And we, it's very difficult for us to take our lives and say, well, well, Paul hadn't experienced this or Paul hadn't experienced that. It's pretty easy to look through his bio and see quite a few difficult things. And yet he had this very solid, rich experience of joy. And so there's something we can learn from him. We continue here in verse 1. He says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. So apparently he has already talked about joy with them. Clearly he's talked about it earlier in this book, um, but he's written other letters to the church at Philippi, and he had been with them uh, on at least two occasions that we know of, and so he had talked about joy with them. So this isn't the first time that he's been talking about rejoicing. He's repeating himself. But he says, it's no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. He's aware of the fact that he's repeating himself. But he says this is important, and he calls it a safeguard for you. There was a seventh grader who asked me this week, uh, just a few days ago, if there will be homework in heaven. <laughs> and uh, I answered that God is infinitely glorious and therefore infinitely interesting and I expect that we will be learning about him for thousands and billions of years. And learning is study, and study is work. So you know what it's like to read a Bible passage, and you've, you've read it again and again, and all of a sudden you come on to it, it may be the 20th pass, but you see something that you've never seen before. And it's not this peripheral thing, but you actually see into the core of it better. Now, if God is infinitely glorious and interesting like that, and if creation reveals God's invisible attributes, then we are going to be infinitely interested in God and in the world that he has made, and that may include some kind of work. So that was my answer. So the student said, okay, so if there is homework in heaven, it definitely won't include any busy work. Like, do this same math problem a hundred times, even though I understood it at the beginning or something. And I said, well, God created human beings to work in the Garden of Eden. That was what it means to be human. Work isn't a curse. Toil and futility are curses of the fall, but work is not a curse. I don't think that an eternal vacation sounds heavenly. I want to do things. Uh, God made me in his image. God is a creator. God is a storyteller. God uh, is a nurturer, which is why we as his children made in his image like to do those things. Now, God may change human nature. That's certainly within his prerogative uh, so that, you know, all that we aspire to do for thousands of billions of years is to sing or to play the harp or something like this. But it is more likely that human nature will always be human nature, but restored. 
which means we will be learning and working in the new heavens and the new earth. And the main difference now, uh, the main difference between our work now and then is that then we won't do our work with sinful laziness. So that was my answer to this (laughs) seventh grader. The point here is that we need reminders that pull us deeper into the most important Bible ideas. Ideas like rejoice always. This is repeated all through Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, many times in Paul. Too many Bible teachers think that they need some new insight, some new perspective, some new interpretation in order to keep people interested. But Paul knew something about basic truth, and that is that it never gets stale. Now, it can be taught badly. You can certainly have a boring teacher teaching something fascinating. But good teachers repeat themselves. It is a safeguard to have someone repeating the same things, this phrase Paul uses. That's a safeguard for us, to have someone repeating the same things, the infinitely glorious core stuff of the word of God. So what he's saying here is rejoice. I know I've talked about this before. I'm going to probably talk about it again because rejoicing is really important. This is a safeguard for you. You need to understand what what it means to really rejoice, to have this deep in your bones rejoicing that can handle all kinds of different circumstances. That's the kind of thing that I want to see happening in your bones, too. So now what he does in this passage is he's going to explain a threat to joy, a threat to joy. He says, watch out for those dogs those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. All right, so now what is Paul talking about here? Watch out for those dogs. Now, Paul went from town to town planting new churches. That was what he did. That was what God raised him up to do. And all through those years, false teachers would come after Paul and try to change people's minds. You can imagine how annoying that would be. So he plants this new church, and these people are weeks old in terms of their understanding of theology. And then he leaves town, and he goes to a new place, and these other traveling false teachers would come to town, and they would say, okay, forget what Paul said. Here's what what you need to do. Uh, They would say, look, Paul was right about Jesus. He is the Jewish Messiah, but don't be so quick to throw out the Old Testament. If you want to be really tight with God, yeah, believe in Jesus as the Messiah and you need to obey the Old Testament law. And that's very different from what Paul had said. Paul said things like Romans 6.14, you are not under the law, but under grace. And Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, you don't need to follow the law in order to be righteous. We do not work for our salvation. We simply put faith in the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. False teachers came along and said, no, 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 hold on, not so fast. Jesus died to save us from our sins, and that's cool. We don't need the temple anymore and all of those sacrifices anymore because the cross worked for that. But that doesn't mean that we just throw out the Old Testament. You still need to get circumcised. You still need to follow the Leviticus dietary laws and all of these kinds of things. And that's what a really good God follower is going to do. 
So this debate raged in the early church. People questioned the basic definition of the gospel saved by grace through faith. And all these Gentiles, these non-Jews that were starting to come to Christ and all of these Jewish people saying, no, 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 this, this is too weird. They don't look like God's people. This doesn't feel the way that it's supposed to feel. All these people acting and dressing and eating whatever they want is crazy. Like this needs to feel much more like Jewish. And so these people were called the Judaizers and they've been known as the Judaizers ever since. And Paul calls them dogs. Now, that's a derogatory term, which I know is hard for some of you because your dogs are like your children and maybe nicer than than your children or whatever. And those days, people didn't really think about dogs as a domesticated animal. Obviously, there were domesticated dogs in some parts of the world, but not in this part of the world. Dogs were mangy. Dogs were wild, unclean. Um, there are a lot of dogs in Africa, so these trips that I make to, uh, to Africa, we often see dogs, but they're all outside, very, very flea-ridden, nasty. Uh, they're always in these mangy packs that are fighting together and fighting over the female. They scavenge garbage. So this is a really good metaphor for a false teacher, a dog. It is the definition, the metaphor of uncleanness. So Paul doesn't just disagree with these Judaizers and have this kind of polite interaction with them like let's have a let's have a town hall meeting and we'll debate this and so no Paul calls them dogs and then he calls them evil doers you see there in verse 2. He calls them evil doers. That's a strong term, evil doers. These guys are friends of Satan. These are evil doers coming in there and undoing the stuff that I've been clear about in terms of what it means to be on good terms with God by grace through faith. Then he calls them mutilators of the flesh, and he's talking about these Judaizers. What does that mean to be a mutilator of the flesh? He's talking about circumcision. These guys said, you have got to be circumcised if you want to be part of God's people. And Paul says, no, we are the circumcision We are the circumcision. And when he says we, he's talking about all of these Gentiles who have not been circumcised. We are the circumcision. And he's referring to all of these people who have not been physically circumcised. But what does circumcision represent? It was the Old Testament sign of the covenant. It is the mark of a person who belongs to God. When a person has faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible calls it circumcision of the heart. And Paul is saying, we are God's people now. And that didn't happen by mutilating the flesh through circumcision. It happened by faith. You repented for your sins. You put your trust in Jesus Christ. That's what marks you as a God follower. That's what marks you as a child of God. That's what marks you as one of the chosen people. We are the real people of God. And he goes on by saying, we are, the, we are the circumcision who serve God by his spirit, by which he means in contrast to works of the flesh, stuff that we do. We don't do stuff for God. What happens is that the Holy Spirit comes into us, makes us a new person, empowers us, and the stuff that we do comes from Christ through faith. And so he says, We who serve God by his spirit, who boast 
in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, that's a cool, fra- cool phrase there. Who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's talking about boasting and he's talking about confidence. What makes us confident of salvation? What do we look to as the thing like, that's why I'm saved. That's what makes me saved. See, our confidence in salvation comes from Christ and what he did that is given to us for free. It is not, our confidence does not come from the stuff that we do for Jesus. And if someone is confident in the flesh, that means that that person does all kinds of things in order to feel good about how God sees him. And Paul says, look, I boast in the flesh. I mean, look, guys, I didn't save myself. I was a really bad person until the Damascus road when all of a sudden Jesus came and I understood that he really is the king of kings and he really is the savior. And I was the least deserving person on planet Earth at that moment because I had been fighting against his people. And I was sitting there applauding as Stephen uh, was killed and martyred. I was the least qualified. I was the biggest sinner All I did was kneel down and accept what Jesus Christ offered. I believed in Galatians 6.14. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I boast about. That's what I think is awesome. That's what makes me feel on good terms with God. It is Jesus Christ dying on the cross in my place for me. The worst sinner I've ever met. You want to hear me boast? I'm going to boast about Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lamb of God, the friend of sinners. There was nothing that I could do. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's ridiculous that he made me his ambassador. What a privilege. What a savior. What grace is that? It offends me that someone would tell you, some dog, some satanic blowhard would tell you that you got to cut off a part of your body in order to be on good terms with God, that you got to follow some kind of rule so that you're accepted by God. No, he accepts you based on the righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ alone, full stop, period. You remember this Philippian jailer who almost killed himself uh, there in Philippi and Paul yelled out, hang on, we're all still here. And it was in Acts chapter 16, it says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That's the entrance fee to the people of God. It's belief. We come with zero dollars, very dysfunctional and messed up, and we walk right up to the gate and we say, can I get in here, please? And we get welcomed in as a child, not just as like, all right, fine, you got your ticket, go ahead and come in. But we get welcomed like a child that was lost. Well, now, what do people do to save themselves? And I think Paul is dealing with two different threats to joy, two different ways that people go about it. How do people save themselves? People basically feel, and I think this is true for, as a new 
believer in Jesus Christ, which could be many years down the road in our spirituality, but as an immature believer in Jesus Christ, we want to be close to God, but we might have this feeling as a result of gospel confusion that there is no way that he's actually going to like me unless I get my life together. Have you seen my life? I'm sorry, but (laughs) there's no way he's going to like me unless I clean myself up. And then I'll feel on good terms with God. Um, A person may also feel that if I'm actually going to be happy, Bible talking about rejoice, rejoice, and if I'm actually going to be happy, my circumstances really do need to change. I need this almighty, powerful God to come in and change these circumstances. So there, and this is all gospel confusion. This idea that if I'm really going to be happy, I got to get my act together. I got to get my life together and I need God to change my circumstances. And if those two things don't happen, then I'm not sure that I can actually have this joy that Paul talks about. These are desires that we have to be close to God, to be situationally happy. And we try to solve these problems without the gospel. We may pass the exam if somebody asks us, what is the gospel? Explain the doctrines of grace and so on. We may pass the exam. But in terms of a real relationship to our heart and and our happiness, and our sense of joy deep in our bones, that's when we forget about the gospel. We may think, I've got to get my life together. I feel better when I've done all kinds of good things for God. I can go to sleep that night feeling like, okay, I'm a good Christian, probably likes me today. But the joy that Paul talks about comes from, he says, the cross of the Lord Jesus. The joy that Paul talks about, he never says, look, If you could just get your life together and, you know, put two or three days in a row of decent devotions, you know, and if you would just convert somebody, because how many people have you converted this year or how about in your life? Like if you if you could just get your act together spiritually, then you can look back on that and you can say, I'm in and I feel good about myself spiritually. No, that is not what Paul says. Paul says, my joy comes from the cross of the Lord Jesus, not from good deeds to earn his love. Big part of my own story. You guys have watched me morph in front of you over all of these years. And you may remember 10 years ago that uh, we did a all through the Bible in a year series. Who remembers that? Anybody remember that? Yeah. Okay, cool. We came to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon changed my life. And all the people said. (laughs) I didn't hear the amen from the background. I'm serious, though, because in the Song of Songs, uh, what we see here is a picture of a beautiful marriage, two people that really love each other. And then, you know, about a month and a half after that, we came to Hosea. And it was neat because during that series, we're trying to take an entire book and spend two or three weeks on it or maybe even just one week on it. So you're trying to summarize the essence of an entire book in in 45 minutes or so. And uh, so, so Song of Solomon was fresh in our minds. And then along comes Hosea. Where So first of all, God explains the beauty of marriage, and then later he takes this disastrous people that had committed spiritual adultery, and he says, hey, I love you like a wife. 
That's the illustration. That's the metaphor that he used in order to say, here's how much I love you. Yeah, you've slept with all kinds of other people. You're, you're dirty. I'm trying to talk to you. And you're like thinking about some other guy. You are a disaster. But you know what? I love you. You're not just in because you, had, you bought the ticket. I love you. I'm going to come find you when you get lost. I love you. In fact, I'm going to send my son to die for you. I love you that much. That really changed my life, preaching those two sermons, because I remember just a couple of years before that, sitting in my in-law's living room, feeling very intensely like, okay, I know that I am saved, but I do not think that God likes me. And I'm worried, you know, there's that phrase, people get to heaven and and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm pretty sure he's not going to say that to me. He's going to say, okay, you're in, you're in, you're in, you're in, you, well done, good and faithful servant, you're in too, you're in too, okay, fine, you can come too. (laughs) But just understanding basic gospel, understanding just the basic definition of the gospel, it is not earned. It is because God brings glory to himself by going after the least qualified people, the, the biggest disasters. That actually brings glory to him is to go after somebody who is way less qualified than anyone else and says, you're my kid. You're mine. I love you like a wife. You're in my family. I'm going to send my Jesus, my son, to come and die for you. He's going to big a, go build a big house and we're all going to live together for eternity. That's how much I love you. It finally sank into my heart. So I still have all kinds of psychological problems, but I do not <laughs> wonder if God likes me because I accept the fact that I am undeserving and yet God loves me anyway. And I'm in by faith. Luke chapter 15 has a bunch of stories about stuff that got lost and was found. The famous one is the prodigal son. But right before that, there are a couple of other stories. So I'll just summarize the entire chapter with this quick one here. Jesus says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. As believers, we get caught up into that joy. Lots of things might be going wrong in our lives. And yet, in a spiritual sense, we have been caught up into this party that I was lost, but I have been found. Even though our circumstances are not redeemed yet, we are cherished children of God that have been brought into a kingdom filled with a glorious and rejoicing father. And so in Romans chapter 5, 11, Paul says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's the basis of his joy. And that doesn't change. If things go bump in the night, we find ourselves in the tall grass. We rejoice, verse 1, in the Lord. We do not rejoice in the cancer. We do not rejoice in 
the divorce. We do not rejoice in whatever the problem may be. We could fill in the blank with lots of things that stink. We rejoice in the Lord and we do not put our confidence in the flesh and the stuff we do to get ourselves clean and to have a good life. Confidence in my life looking a certain way. That is not where my joy comes from. Because there's always more you can do. You could always be a little cleaner. You could always be a little better, a little more respectable, a little less irritable, a little more evangelistic, a little more committed to the church body. You could always just, there's all, you're never done with any of that. And, if, and so if that's where our joy comes from, you're never going to have joy unless you have some irrational view of yourself that, you know what, I am actually a pretty good person. <laughs> I, I'm pretty much better than the most of the people in here, so I should feel better about myself because... No. Paul's joy is not a fake joy. He's not like, oh, God's in control and God loves me and so I have joy. No, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 says that he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Even through tears, even through terrible losses, Paul has joy in his bones. A few days ago, I woke up in a bad mood. And I was just kind of cranking around and stuff like this. And I don't need breakfast. I don't like myself, so I'm not going to have breakfast. I'm going (laughs) to. And I went outside and there was this beautiful. We have roses at our house. And there's this beautiful rose. We have this really cool one that's got two different colors going on. Uh, The invisible attributes of God are revealed in the things that have been made. Thank God there's an outside Get out of myself and all the me and all the problems and the stress and the eh. And I go outside and there's this rose. It's like this perfect rose. And that's what good theology does to us. These reminders that there is a big world out there filled with a big, loving, gracious, powerful God. And it is not a temporary or fluctuating joy. Paul's joy doesn't come and go. You don't meet him one day and he's like, oh, I'm having a bad day. And then meet him another day and he's like, everything's great. He's got this this normal state of joy. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, he says, rejoice always. And Romans 5.2, he even says, rejoice in sufferings. What? Rejoice in sufferings? you talking about well it's because the joy is based on the cross of christ and that never goes away and the glory of that and the party going on over that never stops it is not a tiny joy this small little okay i know this theological principle and sometimes i try to remember it but my situations are so huge no paul or not even paul david psalm 16 in your presence there is fullness of joy Fullness of joy. Okay, so how do we get this joy into real life situations? How does it happen in a real life situation? This is important. This is important because it's common, I think, in for all of us to experience something like, say, the last half hour or so and think, okay, I agree with what he's saying. 
But then on Tuesday, when you get that phone call from the person that doesn't like you and is rude and your heart just sinks, (laughs) that's when you got to remember what we've just talked about. That's when it matters. That's when you've got to think and fight for joy. And so I want to propose three things to do right after you get that phone call. And I encourage you to write these things down because these are basics. Three things right in the middle of whatever the monstrous situation is. And it doesn't have to just be a bad situation. It could be a good situation. Some of us were talking a couple of days ago about how some of the least spiritual moments of my life have been at places like Disneyland where I just, I just forget to read the Bible in the morning and I just don't think about what I need to do and then you go several days without really having any kind of interaction with the king of kings. So it may be a bad situation. It may be a good situation. What we're talking about is real life, real life in all of its terrible beauty, real life. We've got to bring these three things into the real life situations in order to have a joy that doesn't go away. And the first thing is to seek God in the middle of whatever that situation is. Seek him in the middle of it. You are on the floor. Have you ever done that? I've done that where something so bad happens that you are on the floor crying, okay, that's the situation that needs theology. That's that's when you've got to seek out after God. And so the psalmist in Psalm 61 says, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. And I love that. David feels like I am on the other side of the world compared to where God is. I'm on the other side of Russia. And God is like in Idaho or something like this. I'm at the end of the earth and I'm crying out to you. Hear me, hear me. And he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against my enemy. Seek God, seek God in the midst of trouble, seek God. And the second thing is while you're seeking him, remember God's attributes. Remember. So first seek and second, remember. You see, it takes some concentration to be spiritually healthy. It takes some focus to have joy. It doesn't just come. It, it does not just come. If we think that it's just going to happen, then we will be tossed around by every wave of situation that happens. So we seek God in the midst of real life, the good and the bad. And during that seeking, we remember his attributes. As David said there, uh, you, are, you, know, you have been my refuge, a strong tower against my enemy. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses is talking to the people before they went into the promised land. And he says to them, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? Moses says, you shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the people of whom you are afraid. Remember God's attributes. Remember that he is glorious. Smell that rose. Lois was talking yesterday about how many 
different shades of green. Have you ever noticed that looking at grasses or a hillside? Like it's amazing, you know, all those different like remember that there is stuff out there that is intricately designed and sustained by God. And we are part of that. Don't forget the attributes of God. He is glorious. He is powerful. He is loving. And remember these things in real life. And that makes an impact on joy. I'm not saying that all of a sudden you're not going to be sad about the fact that your child just died or something like this. We're not pretending like life isn't hard. We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing because of God's attributes. So seek him. Remember what he's like. And third, hope in his promises. Hope is so important. We want to be happy. We want to have this peace that doesn't go away. And this is a hard thing now because we are sinners and we are finite. And so we get hungry and tired and all kinds of other things that may impact our joy. We are surrounded by trials. So there are lots of reasons why our joy is going to come and go. And so it takes focus. And part of that focus is hope. God promises to be with us. God has given us an important mission that he has given guaranteed success to. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God promises to come back for us and to fix all of this stuff. The end of Matthew, great section. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So there you have mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. To be truly happy, to rejoice, we have got to seek after him. We've got to remember what he is really like, and we've got to hope in his promises. He's not going anywhere. He is, pro- he is Emmanuel, God with us, and he has a great mission that he has guaranteed success, and he is going to come back and make all things new. We've got to seek and remember and hope, not just right now, but on Tuesday. And on Thursday, later on today, in the middle of an argument with somebody that you really care about who is not listening to you and doesn't seem to value your thoughts, seek and remember and hope then to drive these truths of Jesus Christ into the middle of real life. Let me close with this from Psalm 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous talking to you, you sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. And you think, well, but I'm not actually all that righteous. Come on now. We're talking about the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are righteous. We are equally righteous because it is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So this is talking to you if you have repented for your sins and you believe in Jesus Christ. So accept it. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Let's pray. 
Lord God in heaven, we thank you for this passage. And, you know, on first reading a passage on circumcision, we think, okay, how is this going to make a difference in my afternoon? And we thank you that there is this infinite depth to your scriptures so that when your Holy Spirit gets a hold of our minds and our hearts and we crack open your word that you do something there and you help us to think about you and other people and ourselves in a totally different light. And so we praise you for giving us your word and your spirit so that we can have experiences like this. And God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would give us joy a lasting, deep-in-your-bones joy that is not changed by circumstances, that is not earned through getting our act together, but is based in your love and your power and your promises. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.